0: Everyone, welcome back. This is the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined, as always, by Steph Voye and Barry Casson. How are you both? Good, Danny. How are you? Hey, I'm pretty good. Pretty good, I,
1: pretty good.
2: I feel great. I feel really, really good. I was going to tell a dad joke, but I think I'll wait.
1: Well, this is, what do you get it out of your system, Barry?
2: I think so. Well. I don't think so. No, no. I, I, I'm. It's out of my system. I'm, okay. I'm looking forward to the podcast. Yeah. Likewise. You know what?
0: I think the good news is, is that there's no chance that we're going to have to wait that long. So I'm <laughs> sure that we'll hear it any second now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's nice to talk to you both again. And uh, we have a guest on the show as well, Adam Krushkitsky, who is a resident in the internal medicine program. Adam, hi.
3: Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having Great. me. Great.
0: We're great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Can, uh, do you want to introduce yourself, tell everyone who you are, what you're up to?
3: Yeah, of course. Uh, so I, I am uh, currently uh, in the fourth year of my training as a general internist and down the road I hope to practice uh, internal medicine with some interest in uh, cardiovascular prevention and also partially uh, work up north in remote settings uh, and hope help those populations and then also stay in Lower
2: Mainland. So let me just say that Adam's been one of the most valuable and and interesting people I've worked with in the last few years. Adam has a PhD. He actually developed a system at the beginning of COVID that we started to do consultations remotely. He actually didn't develop the system, but he applied it to our situation and he's now doing fellowships in not only general internal medicine, but in other aspects of cardiovascular disease. So it's really a a real treat that he's going to present a case to us today. Adam, uh, save a little talent for the rest of us maybe.
0: Okay, well, um, we're really looking forward to the case today. And- Before
1: we jump in, can I just uh, relay a quick anecdote? Of course. You know, I, I was thinking about sort of diagnostic thresholds and stuff the other day. I was, I was playing with my kids. I have, I have two kids: a five-year-old and seven-year-old. And we were playing in my five-year-old's bedroom, and we were like really immersed in some Lego play. And then my our front door opened and then closed like the lock opened someone came in the lock closed and i was teasing my kids i knew that it was my wife who would come into the apartment and i said hey do you think that could be a robber and my kids both laughed and they know i'm joking and i said well, no but seriously how do you know it's not a robber and they said dad it's very unlikely Oof. and and then so much so that they didn't bother to like get up and investigate and and i thought to myself like how do we make decisions around that how let's say like a robber coming into your house is a very bad outcome, how can we be so sure as to not get up and investigate? And and I wonder like how people sort of arrive at understanding likelihoods and thresholds and stuff and, and how that bears on like, for example, our job you know, we talk about wanting to rule out really dangerous things or really common things, or at least that's how often I approach cases. But, like, someone breaking into your house is a pretty dangerous thing, and it didn't meet our threshold to investigate. And I just, I wondered, like, is this a crazy conversation? Is this is this even worth talking about? But, like, how do you approach that? Let's say someone has a very low likelihood of a very dangerous thing going on with them. How do you decide whether you're going to chew on that or, or work that up or not?
2: Can I just say something in response to that? I think that I've actually also as well thought about this. And it's about two things. And this may be, may, may, there may be more things, but here are the two things I think about. There are there are two different spheres involved. One is the patient and their presentation, and two is the physician and their receptiveness. And it's really within both of those realms that the decision is made. And we actually criticize sometimes when the decision is incorrect, but it's just two orbits circulating and and understanding, trying to solve the problem. But the problems that are perceived on the patient's part may be over-exaggerated or underplayed. The problems on the physician's part may be over-exaggerated or underplayed. And I think that's the humanity of medicine.
0: I think of this for like, Uh, First of all, I think that's a totally legitimate topic because I think this is like the heart of why it is complicated to do this job. I think of it when someone comes in with like chest pain uh, or uh, pick kind of any kind of chest presentation. And like, why, why do we even bother with a chest x-ray? Why don't you just do a CTPE on everyone who comes in with pleuritic chest pain? Because they could have a PE like pleuritic chest pain is a symptom. So like, and I've had a patient recently just say like, well, what's the harm? Like, like I want it. So why not? Like, what's the downside? Like I'm saying I'm okay with it. And I I think we use pre-test and post-test probability because we recognize that there are downsides to doing superfluous tests or doing tests in the wrong order. And I think we've definitely bumped into that on this show where you get a test and then it causes a lot of noise and it offers you no diagnostic clarity because it was either the wrong test or it was like a test done at the wrong time or in the wrong order. So you weren't ready for that piece of information and you get diagnostically dragged elsewhere. Is that like, I I think that's something that has bothered me when seeing patients with what could be nothing or could be something terrible, um, just at the beginning stages. Is that kind of like where you're at Steph?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's right. I, I think that when we're doing, when we're deciding on say specifically, uh, an investigation or a, or a pathway, starting down a pathway of investigation, I think that we're, we're trying to make decisions around, can this thing, can this next test help us or help the patient? And what might be the downsides, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think, you know, part of it is that I I think so many fields and so many people have algorithms or or well-flushed out approaches for all kinds of problems that they encounter, engineers, architects, pilots, all these people. And we, I don't know, like, I feel like the next frontier for us is to start embedding with like more formal decision-making tools and artificial intelligence. Because sometimes it's like, you know, you know, a patient will present with pleuritic chest pain, and half of eMERGE docs or half of internists will order a CTPE, and half won't. And and I find that very unsettling. I find it yeah. uncomfortable. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I I, I just I want to throw. I, th- I think we actually talk about this quite a lot with each of the cases that we see. But I, I just. You know, I I want us to be mindful that like this is something that we're trying to do in this show, not this specific episode, but in this show in general, is to talk people through like why we are doing certain investigations and why not others, and and we also need to accept that there's for for especially these difficult cases, there is no clearly one right way. But I think we'll we'll do people a good service by just talking that through.
2: I mean, the other part of it is that, and we've tried to emphasize, is that the helpfulness of a test is not always the helpfulness of a test and so that even if the test is positive or negative understanding the test and its characteristics becomes an important part in the diagnostic algorithm to understanding the the disease process so and we've illustrated that in a number of occasions. We've had patients who have tests who've been totally unhelpful and other patients whose tests have been totally helpful. And in neither of those cases has, has the test reliability been the only way we've approached the problem. So I support what you're saying. But again, it's, I think part of what we're doing is an understanding of how the physician is comfortable as well as the patient is comfortable.
0: All right. Well, we'll keep that in mind as we try and work through this case. So Adam, we'll hand it over to you and uh, go for it.
3: So the case that I have for today is a patient who I had a privilege of looking after and the story spans over a few years. So we're start off uh, when we first meet her and she's in her mid-20s. And uh, this is a woman who presents to the hospital with painless jaundice. She doesn't have any other symptoms. And uh, on the initial history, Basically, the only thing that we learn about her is that in the past, she's had multifocal papillary carcinoma of the thyroid, and she had her thyroid removed and now is on supplements. And she had hemolytic anemia in the past. And lastly, that she has recurrent choletiasis. She's died otherwise feeling well. And I was thinking that would be a good start uh, to the case. So we can take it away from here. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> oh,
1: what's so funny
2: <laughs> <laughs> There's somebody that played this game before.
0: <laughs> that was a more malevolent laugh than I was expecting.
2: Yeah, jeez.
0: <laughs> okay, a little bit of a sinister start to a case. All right, so so twenty something year old woman presenting with jaundice, and that's our uh, that's our starting point. <laughs> that's the, that's the starting point. Yeah.
3: yeah,
1: and she's got these two jaundice things. She's got a history of hemolytic anemia remotely, which we don't have. Good history on, and she's got a history of gallstones, but now is presenting with painless jaundice, right? Yep, that's correct. So, I mean, you know, I I think painless jaundice, I think, you know, we're going to talk about probably hemolytic anemia, just hyperbilirubinemia, and there's a whole sort of differential diagnosis for that. And Hyperbilirubinemia on the basis of indirect hyperbilirubinemia from hemolysis or direct from liver disease. That's where I would start. And, and and you know and it's and it's you know sometimes when we do these cases, I also will start with like the most kind of interesting and salient thing. So I don't know about you, but in my mid twenties, I'd never had a single medical thing happen to me. And this lady's already been diagnosed with papillary thyroid cancer, hemolytic anemia, and gallstones. And so I'm starting to wonder if these things, particularly because she's so young could be related. I have no idea how they could be related right now, but that thought has at least crossed my mind.
0: Yeah, that's a good thought. I, I was trying to, uh, um, I was buying time by le- <laughs> by staying quiet and <laughs> letting you speak. And I was just thinking about like these these three things in the past medical history, and I'm not sure that I see a, an obvious relationship between them as of yet. So yeah, I mean, I, I think the workup, just as you've described, so hemolysis versus something hepatobiliary.
2: And I would just say that I don't have, I actually hadn't even jumped to any of these things. My my biggest thought was the one that uh, Steph mentioned is that, you know, you, by your mid-20s, you have three significant medical problems, mm-hmm. which may or may not be related, but each of them has a consequence. So I'm kind of interested i don't have any i don't have a hypothesis i i mean hemolytic anemia can lead to gallstones of course but i don't this is just really unusual
0: but what do you guys typically do for your like hemolysis screening tests or how would you kind of decide whether this is hepatic or uh, extra hepatic hyperbilirubinemia I mean, assuming it's first been, assuming the bilirubin's eye yeah. I would first that confirm blend. that.
1: Like every <laughs> right. now and then, you know, someone will come in with like carrot anemia or something, you know, there's eating tons of like, like carrots or orange food. And I'd want to make sure that it's not that I would, I would just start by
0: checking the lady's Billy And did everyone learn about that diagnosis on magic school bus? Like I did? No. I, okay. just here
2: now. This is, this is fessing up. I will tell you how I learned about my, that diagnosis. When I was starting out in practice, I ate carrots I ate carrots for more for breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner. And I turned orange. Are you serious? I therefore showed um, <laughs> orangeness and jaundice were not part of my description. It was carrots. Mm.
0: But you, you know, that you must have eaten a lot of carrots, Barry.
2: I ate a lot of carrots. The, the, uh, the rabbits and I were in competition. <laughs>
0: Barry,
1: it, uh, I've known Barry for a long time, and he never... Ceases to surprise me.
2: Oh,
1: <laughs> every every few months, I learn some new nugget, and I'm just floored.
0: And and you know what? I get the feeling that he's holding, like he knows their interesting stories, and just holds on to them, and just yeah. waits for just like the perfect nonchalant moment to deploy them. Like, oh yeah, well, I I once turned orange, and he waited for me to talk about magic school bus. He knew that was coming. He knew it. <laughs> you know, so. The, I, get, I
1: think the other comment I was going to make is, you know, I think we've talked many times here about Hickam's dictum and Occam's razor, the, you know, these, these ideas that, you know, often the most likely explanation is the one that accounts for all the findings versus someone can have multiple ongoing coincident processes. And my own hypothesis, just like from being a curious person and a keen observer, is that the younger you are, the more likely you are to have an Occam's razor sort of diagnosis. And the older you are, the more likely it is to be Hickam's dictum. I can't prove that in any way, but that's how I often start thinking about these things. So because what I, I said this already, because she's so young, I am definitely going to ask myself and honestly, like, just do a good Google search on whether these things or how these things could be related. Mm-hmm. All right,
0: Adam. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go from let here. you fill in some of those details for yeah. us. So.
3: So, so, so we're actually going to, so this is, this is just the beginning of the case. So I, I will actually get uh, the answer for this part. Uh, pretty quickly. And then we'll move on to the other part, which becomes a little bit more challenging. So uh, we do those initial investigations and we dig a little bit more into the history. And uh, she actually had spherocytes noted in the past on a blood smear. Uh, LDH comes back elevated, the interactive bilirubin is elevated, and uh, she's diagnosed with uh, most likely hemolytic anemia in the context of hereditary spherocytosis. She gets admitted, and on the same admission, uh, she undergoes cholelithiasis and, and uh, splenectomy, uh, as this is seen as a uh, mild crisis, which was thought to be precipitated by a viral infection. So as she recovers, all of a sudden, she starts to develop left-sided deficits. She gets weak, she develops tremors, and she also has some extraocular uh, movement deficits, which unfortunately I don't have the exact notes on, but that sort of happens in the next few days post-operatively. Whoa. And how far post-op was all this starting to develop? So as far as I understand, it was it was within a couple of weeks or so. Okay.
0: And was it all precipitous, like kind of all of these neurologic findings came on at once, or it was kind of a gradual creep of as, or, or progression
2: of symptoms?
3: As far as I understand, it was fluctuating in nature. So, but it all sort of... Happened over a span of a few days and then slowly, gradually improved. What do you Was your
2: surname Wilson? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. I'm just wondering. No, no.
0: All right. Very <laughs> elaborate. <laughs> what do you getting? Well,
2: at? I mean, some a patient who's got jaundice and progressive neurologic problems, uh, so, I mean, it's true that spherocytosis may cause the, the hemolysis, but hepatolenticular disease, and so a neurologic phenomenon with someone who presents with jaundice at a young age may well be Wilson's disease. Mm.
3: No, that's a, that's a very good point. As far as I understand at the time, seroplasma was not sent, but eventually it wasn't. That was not the case.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Steph, what, uh, what's on your mind with this like this pattern here?
1: Um, I mean, she's, just, she's had sort of an you know, again, it's hard to tell when things are related or unrelated, but but I, I think of this as I'm at least starting to think of it as a post-operative complication. And so, I would think about whether she might have had like a bacteremia and has something like a left-sided infectious lesion, you know, like new endocarditis or something like that. Although that's very quick, like she'd have to have had... Quite a, a bad septic event, um, or I'd be thinking like, did she have a venous thromboembolic problem, and she's got an intraatrial shunt or something, and and has popped a clot over to to her brain because they sound like focal deficits, you know. So mm-hmm.
0: I, and I and, know, and I don't see how I don't I don't immediately see how that's related to the erythrocytosis. Mm-hmm. I wonder if like even like if we step back a little bit more, are we. Are we, from the internal medicine side, able to localize this deficit? Uh, Is this one location or multiple locations? So you guys have both inferred that this is central, not peripheral. And then, Barry, you inferred that this is basal ganglia.
2: Well, no, I I, I was actually being a bit facetious because I think that my first diagnosis, if I saw this and was called to see this, I would look to see what postoperative drug she had. And that would be my most, probably the... My provisional diagnosis would be some sort of toxicity from one of the medications she's received postoperatively.
1: But she's got focal left sided weakness, tremor, and mm-hmm. a cranial and a
0: cranial nerve deficit.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah, I think it's something deep. Okay, so I, I think we're probably all interested in in some brain imaging,
3: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. CT, CTA, being maybe our our go to stroke yep. protocol. Yep, for that sound reasonable to, to you folks so maybe we'd start there and then yeah. then elaborate after
3: so to answer the question about the medications as far as i understand that there wasn't anything that would immediately be connected to this and then she undergoes imaging and she gets ctca and she also undergoes an mri and both of which are unremarkable over the next few days the deficits slowly improve and well enough that she's able to go
2: home. A- Adam, can I just interrupt just for a second? Yeah. I'm assuming that this is a healthy woman before she comes into hospital. Healthy, I suppose, is wrong. She had three major problems. But, I mean, she's well-nourished person that comes into hospital? Yes, yeah. Well, it's just that, that I mean, that, is there any possibility she has diamond deficiency for any reason, and we precipitated this? No,
3: no. She she doesn't have, in terms of okay. uh, her sort of... Uh, social slash uh, other, other history, there's there's nothing out of order in terms of uh, the race suspicion uh, for thiamine deficiency, nutritional deficiencies, as uh, she's otherwise well. Okay, thanks. I find
0: that very so, odd. CT, CTA, yeah, no. MR, totally normal, but she had focal deficits <laughs> and uh, tremor, which could very well be like
3: cerebellar or basal ganglia. I find that a little, all a little odd. So, just to kind of Move to the next step. She gets discharged from hospital and uh, she undergoes uh, outpatient workup with the presumptive diagnosis of stroke, uh, as, as, as we sort of chatted about. In terms of her jaundice, that is mostly resolved and uh, she hasn't had any other issues. And uh, sort of in the course of uh, doing investigations outpatient, I just wanted to get your thoughts about just uh, in someone like this, what investigations you'd be thinking about and just wanted to chat about different sort of etiologies of stroke that we would be thinking about in in her
1: so the spherocytosis problem like we think this is kind of sorted it's done we're not going to spend too much time thinking about that i'd be reading about like what like can there be can stroke be a complication of spherocytosis although at the same time i'm not sure this was a stroke right she had an acute neurological event and mri even you know if this is a few years ago mri is a very very sensitive test so Mm -hmm. I'm saying, I'm thinking to myself, especially if she had a, like an acute in-hospital diffusion-weighted MRI, that, that's a v- like super-duper sensitive test. So, if that was negative, I'm saying to myself, this was an acute neurological event, not a stroke. And I can only think of a few things that cause an acute neurological event. I think it's it's stroke or TIA, it's migraine, or it's seizure. You know, and that's one of the nice things about finding finding an acute neurological event, especially, especially a, a focal one. So you know, I realize there can be like demyelinating lesions as well, but again, that would have been found on a on an MRI. So you know, I'd be wondering if this was a a seizure or a migraine. Is that wrong? Is that a, is that am I thinking about that wrong? Or
2: I don't think you're thinking about it wrong, but I would think about it uh, just a bit differently. In a, in, a, in a young woman that presents with an acute neurologic event with no antecedent issues, I would think of uh, an STD syphilis as one of the, I mean, it sounds, that sounds pejorative in some senses, but that was, and I don't, I couldn't fit in the other things, but in the transient nature, I guess it's, it's possible. But those, that's kind of where I would go to there. she has a vascular lesion that's causing this problem.
1: Well, let's say she had syphilis you wouldn't see, you don't end and that presentation, the left-sided weakness and the cranial nerve deficit, you'd expect to see a normal MRI?
2: You know what? I'd have to, I don't know that. I, I The answer that I think you're looking for is no, but I don't know that.
0: Uh, I, I think I would at least, I would probably ask for a second read of the MRI um, by a neuroradiologist if it wasn't already read by one, because I think, you know, we talked about this before that even within what we, what we perceive as a narrow specialty, we're like, oh, radiology, like they all look at all the different kinds of pictures. Like it's so subspecialized and being able to tell that someone's had an acute stroke or a very small stroke or an MRI that's done like very early. um, They are sensitive tests, uh, like, like Steph said, but I think we have to kind of like respect the complexity of the interpretation. And so I would probably ask a, a neuroradiologist, like, is this a perfectly normal MRI? Because the deficits really point somewhere in the brain, like there was something definitely wrong. And uh, it, it's just hard to believe that, like, we really expected to see something. So I think I would start there with my review. And and also ask the question, did I do these tests too early? Do we need to repeat an MRI in a month to, to see if there's evolution um, into something else? So those would be and- things on my
2: mind. And again, I guess the just jumping to the etiology and not to the uh, the inconclusive observation, but ass- assigning this to a, an acute neurologic problem in a young woman who's got three diseases already. Why don't we give her a number four and give her atrial myxoma, and uh, that would, I mean, why not pile it on?
0: Sure. So we're gonna do like an echo and the uh, the holter. That's unlikely <laughs> to unlikely to find anything. But, you know, this is this is understand. like.
1: This is like with well, the issue that I brought up before we even heard about the case, you know, like, so sure, like, let's say she's, let's imagine that this, this lady could theoretically have a myxoma, but again, if, if she did, then the, the mechanism there is that she's having a stroke, right? But the MRI right. was negative. So, totally agree. so yeah. we, we're going to start doing an echo on this woman for, I don't know what reason. and And, and I think the other thing that I was going to mention is. You know, for all the sort of budding general internists who may be listening to this, I think it is important to to try to figure out, like, which cases are you going to sort of go it alone and do your, your work up and sort of go as far as you can? And which ones do you sort of early on just refer to a subspecialist? If a woman was sent to me with this presentation 20 you know she's in her 20s and she's had a, an unexplained acute neurological event where she presented with left-sided weakness and normal imaging honestly I, I i mean i'm fine to sort of bat that out around myself for a little bit but i am absolutely referring this woman to a neurologist like right away I, i'm mm-hmm. not this is i'm not going to mess around with
0: this mm-hmm. absolutely
2: but i don't think you'd mess around i mean i i agree with you that i think a lot of people would you'd want a lot of people be involved. There's a lot at stake. She's young. She's got a variety of different diseases. But I don't think if if I'm the neurologist, what am I going to say differently than when you're going to say?
0: That's why you need to ask the neurologist. Yeah,
1: (laughs) I I don't don't know. I don't know what
0: they're going to say. Yeah.
1: All right. right. So your question, uh, Adam, was what are we going to do? And I think the answer is, I don't know. Uh, I mean, she's already had all the imaging that I would want. And I think I would consider... I mean, I would I would ask her every possible way I could think of about m- her migraine or headache history, and I would I would ask her about any other sort of thing that might suggest an underlying seizure disorder. And I would consider referring her for an electroencephalogram. But but I don't know. I feel kind of like this thing is weird, and, and I don't really understand it actually. Is the
2: problem a transient neurologic event, or is the problem is that what we're trying to solve here? I think so. Adam?
3: Yeah. Um, That's, I think that's the most pressing issue right now. Yeah. Uh,
0: Yeah. So I guess, I guess we, we don't have, I I suppose that we have not localized the abnormality. Like we haven't come up with a a localization that's allowing us to say like, okay, well, it's an inflammatory brain disease. So the workup is for an inflammatory brain disease. It's a stroke. So the workup is for a stroke. Mm -hmm. We're actually not sure what, where and what the lesion is. So I think like what we've kind of come to is that we need someone to help us localize, like where the, wh- where is this happening? And then like maybe from there we can assist with some of the internal medicine side of the neurologic workup. But I, I think we need a neurologist to, to help us out in here.
2: I don't disagree, but I, but there's a stroke <laughs> <You don't>. protocol. <laughs> okay. there, there's an algorithm for stroke protocol. It doesn't matter if you're a neurologist or hematologist, it doesn't matter. There is a whole algorithm. There's a, a, doing carotids, doing an echo, doing a culture, doing brain imaging, doing a CT. I mean, uh, angio, that's, that's kind of the protocol independent of what they think. It almost everybody comes in with a stroke, gets all of those things.
0: But, but, the, but the point I was making is we have not diagnosed a stroke. No. So, so the problem is that we don't even know what the lesion is yet. Mm-hmm. And so we can't figure out what the workup is if we haven't localized anything at all. So I think that the, the reason we're enlisting a neurologist here is not because general internists don't know how um, to reasonably work up uh, or manage strokes, but that we, we actually don't know what the neurologic diagnosis or even area is yet. So that, if, that, if she, that is my point.
2: If she came in with amblyopia or if she came in with hemiparesis that lasted uh, half a day, we call it a TIA.
1: Not if but she had an acute at, negative diffusion-weighted MRI.
0: Yeah, we, we've done a sensitive test. So now we are, we are going to have to ask a neurologist or stroke neurologist, like, okay, does this, could, could you call this a TIA, even with a negative MRI, given this history? So I think, well, okay, how about this? I'm going to get a neurologist opinion and
2: <laughs> <there> <laughs> you
0: can do your, your thing uh, separately. All right, Adam. So w- what happens next?
3: So, so things sort of go quiescent for a little while. So, so just to answer some of the questions and and, uh, that, and uh, issues that came up in the discussion. So infectious workup is negative. So so it's been sent and uh, all the uh, viral testing, uh, bacterial testing, uh, the syphilis, all that's rolled out.
1: Adam, this is on an LP? No, that, or that or was this a serology was test. Uh,
3: but uh, okay. it, this is sort of spanning over. Now we're moving, kind of accelerating time a little bit over the next three, four years. She has been seen by neurology, she did have a fairly extensive uh, workup for the stroke. So she had an echo, which was normal. She had a halter, which was negative. She had an ultrasound of the carotids in addition to the CT, CTA, which again did not show any evidence of plaque. And in the midst of all this, she gets hospitalized for an unrelated reason. And um, she gets diagnosed uh, with a IV-associated DVT. Somebody... Decides to send a prothrombotic workup and she actually does get a positive test and she's had her ozygous for the prothrombin gene mutation. She's treated with anticoagulation for the DVT. Uh, She doesn't have any recurrent stroke episodes for a while and then one day she returns with similar but somewhat different presentation. Again, she has uh, some visual issues, so she has uh, diplopia, she has left sided tremor and weakness. And uh, she uh, also at this time uh, complains of some dizziness and uh, mental fogginess. Upon further questioning, it appears that this was related to a, a minor surgical procedure that she underwent. So she was under a little bit of stress. Again, she undergoes imaging and she has a CT, which is negative, And she also has an MRI, which did not reveal any clear changes. But she has these deficits. And again, over time, they start to resolve... Ever so slowly. Wow, Interesting. I'm unhappy. Yeah.
1: I'm unhappy. So, so I'm specifically unhappy. So So I would say, you know, now she's had multiple of these events and the heterozygosity for the prothrombin gene mutation does increase your thrombotic risk, but she had a provoked event. So it's hard for me to, to understand this this woman's like thrombophilia or, or her degree of thrombophilia, her degree of hypercoagulability. And so there's that sort of mystery that I don't have a good handle on. And now she's had recurrent events repeat acute MRI imaging that does not show a stroke. So I, I, I want to desperately to tie together her maybe hypercoagulable state and the stroke. So I want to order like an echo bubble study looking for a shunt a right to left shunt but i don't even know if she has a hypercoagulable state and i don't even know if she's having strokes so i'm about to order an echo here for a reason that i do- totally don't understand which i'm unhappy about
0: i do not want to jump to a diagnosis cuz that's not fair like every math test i ever wrote you have to show your work but these are they're not strokes but the thing that's coming to mind is like they're stroke like episodes like they're they kind of look like they're supposed to be a stroke, and then there's no stroke when we do any imaging. Does that, like, make you guys think of, like, any, you know, unusual metabolic... I don't want to, like, add additional crazy diagnoses to someone who's already had a bunch of weird stuff happen, but do you guys think about, like, metabolic disorders? Like, oh uh, no, is the you're, associate... <laughs> you're about to say it, and... Barry's about to be very happy. Uh, well, I, then I won't say it. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just wondering if you guys like would start thinking about like, do you have some kind of unusual metabolic syndrome that's being precipitated by other unwellness or other physiologic stress? Yes, Barry's okay, thinking that would about be on that. your mind. Yeah, I would check a lactate maybe during these episodes.
3: So, I, do you want me to answer answer I've, that? I've,
0: they've fainted. They, they fainted. <laughs> they rage fainted. Yes, I, I, I Adam, don't want to. Uh, why don't you fill that in? Uh,
3: so, so, the lactate is actually negative.
0: Great, <laughs> good. It would have been too silly.
3: <laughs> um, so, no, the lactate is negative, and to kind of add more to the story, so again, she starts to recover and, and she gets better, but now she requires rehabilitation oh. as she's getting
2: huh.
3: better and better, and other episodes happen. And another episode happens each time imaging has mm. been negative. She does actually get an echo with a bubble study, and it does show a PFO. She gets put on Plavix. Oh, no! In hopes of preventing these episodes, but they keep happening. I'll just
1: close that thing, and, and then you'll just just get it closed, and then you'll know the answer.
3: Do
0: you, like Steph to that point? Like, do you feel like okay? Like you've had so many of these episodes. Oh, sorry. Maybe, maybe a, a stepping back from that. Adam, Mm -hmm. so are all of the episodes the like almost the same phenotype? Like, are they all like repeat of the exact same like classic pattern
3: for her? So, so they're not exactly the same in the sense that each one is ever slightly so different, but the overall distribution is similar in that there's always eye involvement, either diplopia or um, a one of the cranial nerve uh, deficit, and there's usually left sided tremor and left sided weakness. And there's usually some sort of appears to be stressful or a precipitating event beforehand.
2: Did Did anyone do an EEG uh, and a sleep-deprived EEG, owner?
3: So she had an EEG, and that was normal.
2: Both, both sleep-deprived or not?
3: Do you know what? To be honest, the sleep-deprived, I don't know for sure. But she, as far as I understand, she was worked up with the question of whether this could be seizures, and also with the question of what was what what you guys brought up before, which was the hemiplegic migraines, and it was felt. At the time that this is not the most likely cause, she does get referred to a metabolic clinic for further workup mm-hmm. because it's, it is starting to have this sort of uh, this sort of uh, kind of gestalt to it, and she does get some workup done uh, as as we go through the episodes keep happening.
2: And, and so in a metabolic clinic and, in, and with these episodes of stress, deficiencies, selenium, other deficiencies or toxicities, I guess, are raised? Is that something that's pursued? Uh, so
3: I don't have the exact details of what exactly was tested, but I know that uh, the sort of basic metabolic workup was sent and that was normal. Uh, so she, she had sort of multiple uh, deficiencies tested and uh, multitude of blood work. And she also had some genetic testing sent.
1: Maybe before we go further, Danny, do you just want to tell people what this sy- this metabolic syndrome is that you're that you're interested uh, in? I
0: I can only like fake describe it, but th- there is a disorder called melas, which is
1: mm-hmm.
0: geez metabolic encephalopathy, mitochondrial
1: with... encephalopathy, <laughs> okay.
0: with lactic oh, yeah. acidosis and stroke like episodes.
1: Yeah, Milas
0: Milas M- syndrome. M- so like, and one of the characteristics uh was is the lactic acidosis and mm-hmm. anyways it, it, obviously i don't know a lot about the diagnosis i didn't even know what me lasted for but but maybe like the the learning point there is if what you know is what a stroke looks like and you're looking at something and you're like this looks just like a stroke or you feel like you can localize the lesion even though in this case i actually don't think this was a lesion localizing to a single location. I think it was localizing to a couple different locations, as far as I can tell. You had like extraocular movement deficits, you had tremor, you had hemiparesis or not hemiplegia quite, but, but weakness down one side. I think that the point is that you look at it and you say, I'm seeing things that should be a stroke. I'm doing a good test for that. And it's coming back negative. I think then you would look for what are other mimics of a stroke, and maybe work through the literature in that way? And somewhere on one of those differentials, you would find MELAS or whatever the diagnosis actually is. Is that kind of how yeah. you guys would work from the problem to the solution? Yeah.
1: I like the way you describe that, Danny. I think I think you know exactly the the, the amount that you currently know in your mind about MELAS is exactly the right amount. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know when that to think exists. of it. No, but seriously, you know when to think of it. That's that's all you need. That's the one little kernel that you need to get started. The point isn't to know everything there is to know about milas. That would be weird. You'd be displacing a whole bunch of other much more useful information. You need to know when to consider milas. That's all. And, and so you can either know a little bit about milas. That's fine. Or you can say, hmm, what this woman has is a stroke mimic, I think. And then you just put into Google stroke mimics. And then you start from there. And on that table, I guarantee you Milas will be there.
2: Right. So just to, to fill that in, I was just uh, I just saw a patient with Milas in the last year. <laughs> uh, I, I've been following <laughs> so, this whole story. Every time I go to Barry's office,
1: he tells me about it. It's very
2: interesting. So, really? so it's been, he's uh, the diagnosis was made about seven years ago with a very similar presentation, and he doesn't have Milas. Even though he had all the components, he doesn't. And I'm trying to remember the... Amino acid that he was given, but in any case, it's. I think your your assessment, Danny, is excellent, absolutely excellent. I think they the way you reasoned it out is just. I'm not sure there there are other things, but it's a really difficult diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. All right, so uh, Adam, back to you. What? what, But where do we go from here?
3: No, so, so, so I think that that's that's very on point in terms of narrowing it down to to one of the metabolic problems, and and I think. The one thing that struck me uh, about this case is this whole idea of there's a stressful event or overexertion of some sorts, and and then this precipitates an episode. So,
2: you know, it's a little bit it's a little bit unfair to to say this because Adam and I have worked together, but Adam and I were involved with the Milas syndrome together, or the potential Milas. So, just as a disclosure, we,
3: we, yeah, yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> Aha.
3: Uh uh-huh. but
2: they're in cahoots
3: we are I yeah we, we are <laughs> uh, but uh to kind of kind of uh, move the case along so these episodes keep happening and and uh, she sort of gets to this steady state uh where uh, she's not getting necessarily better she's not getting worse but with each episode there's a pretty prolonged period of trying to convalescence again and, and sort of sort of no solution uh yet uh, but the genetic testing does come back with a possible diagnosis, and I don't know if you guys want to. Uh, I should just just kind of talk about that, or or, or we should take a stab at it again. And,
0: uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Adam! <laughs> oh, Adam, <laughs> yeah. I I I think I uh, I think I've said everything that I know about uh, <laughs> about the topic, yeah. so I I have nothing to add. She's got guys. a genetic
1: <laughs> syndrome genetic syndrome does it have uh, no you know what I'm, I'm gonna say something dumb i just i've i've wondered this whole time does it have anything to do with the papillary thyroid carcinoma but again that doesn't fit for mm-hmm. for for what i know about sort of stroke mimics i was gonna say like does she have you know like multiple endocrine neoplasia but again no like she doesn't have the right kind of thyroid carcinoma ost- carcinoma ostensibly okay let's hear it adam so so
2: just before you go there, yeah. Adam, I'll just I'll just commit myself to, to two nostrils above the water. <laughs> I have uh, no idea. I'm it's I'm in survival mode.
3: <laughs> no, so, so I, I think at that point, like uh, you know, we're getting into to really the the, the the truly rare, and it actually gets even rarer than rare. So so she does get the genetic test extent, and and it comes like positive for mutations are uh, responsible for Leber hereditary optic neuropathy which is a okay yeah, which it. is a mitochondrial disorder which affects the uh, NADH uh, production in the cell or NAD production sorry it affects the NADH dehydrogenase in the mitochondria and uh, it causes mitochondrial dysfunction the interesting part about it that it, her presentation doesn't exactly fit with Leber hereditary optic neuropathy but there is a syndrome, which is called Lieber hereditary optic neuropathy plus, which which is characterized uh, by neurological changes that don't classically fit the mostly uh, ocular and uh, eye involvement of, of the former one. So that's basically the, the diagnosis that was, that was made. And that's the diagnosis that uh, uh, she is living with and uh, coping with. The few interesting things about this is, is that there is question whether there's an overlap with Milas, although with MILAS, there would be expectation of increased lactate and also over time, some MRI changes. She does not have that. Uh, she is being treated with L-arginine with some effect, but uh, well, again... Milas. Mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm. MILAS. And it, it actually did a little bit of reading around this and seems like it's used in a lot of the mitochondrial disorders. Interestingly, she was also tried on a, uh, a new experimental dry- drug called l Uh, which is, which is a basically a a peptide compound that gets into the, uh, mitochondria and stabilizes the mitochondrial membrane. It, it didn't meet uh, the clinical criteria in the studies for, for approval by FDA, but it is used sort of off-label with uh, sort of special approval by Health Canada. And she still has these episodes and they kind of vary in length, but there's definitely a pattern of precipitating event treatment with L-arginine and also dextrose helps. And then also this experimental drug has had some benefit uh, for her. She does have definitely deficits that are quite objective and uh, in some ways striking, and they do also do vary. Uh, so for example, when I looked after her uh, one day, uh, when I went around on her, she told me about worsening diplopia, and then she had a cranial nerve four palsy. It was very apparent, which next day slowly dissipated in addition to the other deficits. So so it is a real thing, and it, it's sort of a, a chronic diagnosis that she's been living with. And the interesting part is, to me is, is, is whether these other diagnoses uh, are related or not, and I, I've done reading around it, and I wasn't able to put it together. So, but that's the kind of um, the conclusion to the case, if you will. Wow.
2: And the pathophysiology Adam, of these transient and but definite neurologic events is, is specific deficiency in these areas or seizure. What's what is what's causing these neurologic abnormalities? So,
3: I don't think we know. That's that's the the, the answer. The the idea is that. There's some sort of so in the Leber hereditary optic neuropathy, the, the canonical sort of presentation. People oftentimes would develop vision loss, and that has been related to basically accumulation of reactive uh, oxygen species and apoptosis in the retinal ganglion cells. In the uh, hereditary uh, optic neuropathy plus, which which also involves other uh, uh, neurons and uh, other other neurological territories it's not as clear. And I wasn't really able to find much about that. But uh, the idea is that uh, it is some form of mitochondrial disease that that basically causes malfunction. And this is not necessarily seen on on the imaging, but in some cases can also see be seen as demyelination. So wow.
0: So Adam, it's a hereditary neuropathy. Did anyone else in the family
3: have it? So apparently, like, so so this is, I know, from the notes, uh, uh but it looks like there's been other people who have the gene, but the penetrance of the gene is actually not that strong. So only about 10 to 20% of women, uh, for example, will develop symptoms. So there is other people in the family who may have that gene, but as far as I understand, everybody is doing well. Hmm. Whoa, Wow!
2: boy, oh boy.
0: It's this kind of case that uh, (laughs) makes me feel kind of happy that there's Really smart people who are <laughs> who know about these really esoteric unusual diagnoses who can take care of these folks because um, that's a that's a tricky one.
2: But, but I I actually think what uh, you and Steph said is very good. I think that uh, I think that uh, if you looked at people that present this way, probably ninety nine percent of the people with presentations like this you would have made a diagnosis on, and uh, you both felt that we were both disappointed and 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 uh, surprised when there was no anatomic lesion and i think the message that i would take is for myself is that these are real events with no anatomic lesion with no seizures Uh, and no headache associated. So the idea that a metabolic, I don't know that I'd come to the genetic part, but a metabolic process was happening much like hepatic encephalopathy. We don't actually, when we see hepatic encephalopathy, because we have some sort of way of assessing it and and dealing with it and understanding it, we don't get that alarmed when it gets better. Mm -hmm. But in this situation, where there's such an unusual presentation and none of the antecedent Parts to metabolic to hepatic encephalopathy. I, I think if we thought about it and if we saw enough of this, this would be kind of a similar situation. So I think it's, I think you guys did great. I, I think I was I was a few steps behind, but well, thank nice. you,
0: Barry. We, we weren't fishing for that, but uh, it's nice to be recognized. Thank you.
1: You know, all I was going to say is it makes me extra sad that the oral exams were canceled this year. This was going to be a case on the oral exam for the <laughs> yeah, Royal College. Really?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah right <laughs> was the point of the oral exam Whoa. to make everyone cry
1: no no i mean this is a very common condition it's the kind of, this is the kind of excellence that the royal college is looking for so so oh, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a little <laughs> sad but uh well at least we got to to talk about it here
2: yeah it's a year. great presentation adam thank you
0: yeah adam thank you so much that is a that is a wonky case yeah um, great thanks for bringing that to us
2: you know, first, but as I say, I think that wonkiness is the fact that we didn't know how to spell it or even probably understand it and knew it beforehand, but we were in the realm of making the provisional understanding of what was happening, and I like that.
0: Yeah. I suppose using the tools that you have, even if it's to negatively diagnose something, is is still a way to ultimately move your diagnostic needle or or like process forward or, or in one direction, so... You don't have to know every single thing about a topic, but you do have to know something about something. Like, okay, you don't know everything about the brain, but you know a little bit about strokes. And so maybe we got there by negative diagnosis rather than positive.
2: And and Adam, just to question you, um, of of all the physicians, and I'm sure there were multiple physicians that were involved, which of the category of physicians moved, as Danny said, moved the needle forward to think about investigating this this, in this way? So I
3: think it was both, it was a, looking through uh, everything that happened, it seems to be a collaboration between internal medicine and neurology. Uh, but internal medicine seems to play have played quite a big role in it as well. So I think it's, it's, that's, that's one thing I, I, I like, I, I think you guys alluded, I love about the specialty is that you don't always know, but you kind of know the direction to go. And I think a lot of times that is actually what was needed. And uh, at least at this point, there's some sort of working diagnosis, even though we don't have a solution, which sometimes happens. But I think I think uh, it was a joint effort it seems like but internus definitely played a big role. Good thank you. thank Thanks so Thanks much. Thanks Adam.
0: Thank you very much. All right everyone we'll catch you next time right. in a couple of weeks with our our next episode. Bye for now.
2: Thanks. Good night. Bye.